time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome, listeners, to another Lickin' On Lending podcast special. This time we're focusing on the topic of artificial intelligence. It just keeps showing up everywhere. Now, we've done a lot of podcasts on artificial intelligence, and we'll put links to some of those for those of you that want to binge and get into and learning from multiple voices and perspectives on this very important topic. Normally, our podcasts last anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes, but this one is going to go for a full hour. And it's because on this podcast, we get into artificial intelligence as it relates to mortgage lending in a much deeper, more meaningful way with someone who is responsible for launching probably what I think is the most significant technology venture since the invention of the IBM PC. So without further ado, allow me to introduce to you our special guest, Pavan Agarwal, who is of Angel II, also with SunWest Mortgage Corp. Pavan, welcome to the podcast. This is a very hot topic and I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, David. Artificial intelligence is very hot right now and so much so that it's even making its way through the halls of Congress. And it's all the talk. And there's a lot of misconception about it. What I want to do is I want to get into today with your years and decades of working with artificial intelligence specific to the mortgage process. I'm really interested in getting your perspective on what is fact fiction and why should we not be afraid of it and embrace it? Yeah. So I would explain artificial intelligence from a simple example. Okay, if you were to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit, it's a simple mm -hmm. formula, a simple algebraic formula. And so if you were to ask a programmer to write software that converts it, and he would write it that algebraic formula in code. So it takes a human being to write that code. And it takes an expert human being to write that code. You have to have some level of education, skills, and training to do that. But with artificial intelligence, I could just give it a bunch of data. I give it a chart of different degrees that were sampled at different times, different temperatures that were sampled at different times. And I can give it the Fahrenheit number and I can give it the Celsius number. And if I give it enough data points, then it will learn from that data points. Then if you give it a new data point, it would automatically convert it one way or the other. So the difference between artificial intelligence and traditional programming is that artificial intelligence you can say in a way, it's not exactly true, but in a way you could think of it, it creates the program from the data. So literally creating software and how does it do it? How can we have confidence in it in doing it right? Especially when you're dealing with something that has consequences of not calculating things right in the mortgage world. How can we have confidence in this? That is the big challenge. Okay. Because what it does is it does it probabilistically. It is a statistical analysis. And it remembers the, the probability of if I take this path, most likely it's right versus that path. So there's a fundamental problem with artificial intelligence in that if you were to use it, for example, back to my Fahrenheit Celsius conversion, and if you were talking about the temperature in this room, it's probably right now about 71 degrees in this room. Okay. Do I need to know, is it 71.112 degrees? 
it doesn't really matter. It's a comfortable room temperature. For most human interactions, close enough is good enough. But financial services, if is your bank, does your bank account have $71 or $72? That's really important. That $1 cannot be off by one. Okay. So when it's financial services, you need digital processing. You don't need this quote unquote analog processing. Analog processing is close, but not exact. Digital processing is exact. But actually, it's interesting. Digital processing is exact, but not close. Okay. That's an interesting way to think about it yeah. because computers have a very hard time being close. They, they can have a hard time being random. It's actually, when I'm going off into the ozone here, it's actually theoretically impossible to write a piece of computer software to generate a random number. We could go down that rabbit hole a long time, but I think that's a rabbit hole that we will avoid at this time yeah, because right. that gets into a whole lot of other areas of security that you can get into. Back to Angel, I mean, that we we'll want to get into Angel AI and specifically how you've done this, but specifically yeah. on the AI component of Angel AI. Talk about your journey. I think what will help us is when did you start studying artificial intelligence? And there's a lot that gets thrown into the bucket of artificial intelligence, there's machine learning. That's where you basically doing some programming. And sometimes that gets referred to as artificial intelligence. And, and there's a bandwidth here. What is true AI? And again, walk us through your journey. Okay. My personal journey, I think in the mid eighties, I was maybe 16 or something. There was a company back then called Borland and people old enough might remember they were actually the hot company. They were a direct competitor of Microsoft back in the day. And they came out with a product called Turbo Prologue. Prologue is an artificial intelligence programming language, still heavily used today. And so when that came out, I ran to the store and bought the first, it was a whopping $100 back then. That's a lot of money. Bought my copy, started playing with it, and then got the idea and understood how it worked. Then my conclusion was the programming is complicated, okay, but more so it takes so much data. And I say it takes a term. I want to make one point. You're self-taught. You did not take classes. Now you eventually did, but you started out self-taught. You bought this program. What was the name of it again? Prologue. I think it's spelled P-R-O-L-O-G. Okay. L-O-G-E or something. I'm not a good speller. So. <laughs> All right. So anyway, you started with that, started learning, teaching yourself how to use that. And that uh -huh. started taking you down what kind of journey? I spent, I don't know, maybe six months messing with it. And I basically came to a high-level conclusion quickly, which is that it's not ready for prime time. This is mid-80s. I'm like, okay, this is cool tech, but you can't run a system on it. And that's number one. And then number two, I concluded, hey, the most valuable thing in the universe is the data. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to put that in perspective, and that was like making that conclusion in the mid-80s was way ahead of our time, right? Because to put it yeah. in perspective... The Instacart IPO that is happening this week or something, it just happened. The company, Instacart, has been valued for its data, not for its technology. And the entire IPO value is on its data. Interesting. So what you discovered back then in the 80s is it's all about the data. That's still true and will probably always be true, yes. especially because computers are calculating off of known data. Exactly. So the, the better the data, the more complete and more historical the data, the more valuable. Interesting. It is. Okay. Keep going down this path. You learned that product was probably a little premature for real practical use. Where did you go from there? Yeah. So the, 
for practical use is premature, but then the conclusion was the data is most valuable is what we really need is the data. So my conclusion was once artificial intelligence technology is mainstream, is matured so that it can be used, there's going to be a mad fight for the data. You're going to need the data. So I said, let me just start collecting the data now. Okay. And if I collect the data now, and maybe in a couple of years when it's ready, I'm good to go. So that was yeah. the idea. I never say- imagined it would be like almost 40 years later that we'd be good to go. So when you talk about collecting data, I think there's the 1003 in, in the world of mortgage lending, the 1003 has got just an immense amount of data elements in it. Is it just that, or is it the conclusions that you draw from the data? Is it all of the above? Yeah, it's all of the above, but more importantly is the conclusions you draw from the data is if when the income changed from 4,000 a month to 3,000 a month, what actions were taken? You need that kind of causal data so that then the AI can learn how to decision. I want to go back to the AI. How is it actually learning per se? And which goes back to the whole, can we have confidence in it? Ever since chat GPT was released in November last year in 2022, we have heard a lot about it. It can bring about some wrong conclusions, not that it's flawed in the way it does it, but it's bringing about some wrong conclusions. Is that based on the data or is it the code that's behind it? It's based on the data. And actually, MIT came out with a study about a month ago, month and a half. I got to go pull it up. And they concluded, it's interesting, they they published a study, what our engineers concluded like last year, which is that it isn't about how much data is in the AI and the M, right? ChatGPT keeps coming out with GPT-3, GPT-4, and the number of tokens go from 100 billion to 1 trillion to 100 trillion or whatever. And what MIT studies showed was that it isn't about the quantity of data, it's about the quality of data. So for a small language model with only, say, 5 billion or 7 billion tokens, they can achieve better results than a 1 trillion token model. Let's talk about tokens. You're introducing a new term, so we're going to have to get some understanding what you mean by a token when you say data token. Expand on that, please. A token is, in the simplest way to understand it, it's not an exact definition, but just think of it as a word. So if you train an AI with a novel, let's say a Harry Potter book, right? Every word in that novel is a token. It doesn't quite exactly work that way, but the simplest way to think of it. The way ChatGPT and these other LLMs work, they just go through the internet and they crawl, just like Google crawls through all the web pages and, and indexes the, Google indexes the pages for searching purposes. These systems index all the web data that it can find. It tokenizes all the web data it can find and then uses those tokens to train their language model. So it's only as good as the data that is put into it. And obviously, as a former president said, there's a lot of fake news on the internet. Fake news in, fake news out. When you're going to an internet has got a subjective, not objective in the data. It's prone to, to errors based on what it's looking at. Okay. You were collecting this data. You were looking at this. You found out that AI wasn't ready for prime time. It wasn't ready to go out and really do what you're doing today. So you started collecting data. Yeah. But it's more than just data, like ratios and LTVs and stuff and 1003 data. It is how a consumer went through the process. It is every decision that was made in the process and why those decisions were made. So not just the data, but what happened because of the data and, and why that happened. And, and also every time there was a customer service concern, 
every time the customer was happy, every time the customer was not happy. And what was the situation at that moment when that made a customer happy or unhappy, right? Because if you can understand specifically what the precipitating factor is to cause customer happiness or disapproval, then your AI can learn to avoid those precipitating factors if it's negative or engage on those if it's positive. It really is a, a much bigger job of data engineering. And that's a term you, you hear a lot these days now, which used to be in the remote corners of computer science. A few geeks in a corner were talking about data engineering. Now it's mainstream. So if you have proper data engineering and most application developers, and this is why we have an edge because most application developers, most applications are time-driven and deliverable-driven. They just want to get it to work. And there's economic pressures to do that. They don't have the freedom to think about, let me just take an extra five minutes and let me think about long-term impact of the value of this data and do some data engineering on this. So it doesn't take long if you design your system right the first time from the core. There's an incremental cost. It's a little bit more costly. It takes a little bit more time than just brute forcing it through. But in the long run, you win. And most of the time when you're developing a system, there's so much pressure that, that even that incremental cost, you can't afford. And the engineers are under, under tremendous pressure just deliver. Whereas I took the time to, to do it right. And we got great systems developed. We completed what we needed to do for the mortgage company. But at the same time, we were collecting this core intelligence. Because again, it boiled down to the thesis was, I need the data, I need the intelligence to build an AI one day. So you were always preparing for this eventuality of where you're at today. You've been collecting years and years of results, the causality of the results of the data that you were collecting. And you were doing it and you were able then to continue to mature that process and perfect that and collecting the data? Yeah, I like the way you say it, preparing. My, my father would have said it, dreaming. Yeah, I love your dad. Yeah, your dad is just an amazing guy. <laughs> yeah. And quite frankly, doing this it did add cost to the project. It did. Nowadays, you can get storage for like nothing, cost pennies to get gigabytes. Back then, this was a massive storage hog and storage was expensive and it was difficult to manage. There was real consequences for these decisions and real pushback from other engineers and, and other architects saying like, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing it from a moral standpoint or a practical standpoint? From a practical standpoint. I want to bring that because yeah. as I'm thinking about it, I want to make sure it's a practical point and that's the most important part of it. Yeah. And I want to understand because there's a lot of people that are talking about the morality that's behind this. Can we trust this? All this, there's fear. And I want to, as, as much as I can, address that in this interview with you. It was a practical point, not something that there was concern of it going in a bad direction from a morality standpoint. Yeah, it was purely a practical point. Often the argument was you're over-engineering the system. You're okay. making it too complicated. You got to believe in what you're doing at the end of the day. And you got to say, right. no, you got to make a call and go and deal with it, deal with the consequences of those. These days now, if you're considered foolish, if you're not thinking about these things when you design a system, that's new in the last 12, 18 months. But and you had that vision for that to do this in a way for which you were criticized, but turned out you were actually doing this in a way that would help yes, bring about exactly. what we have today. Exactly. And look, the criticism not without merit. Look how long it took for AI to come to fruition. Maybe in the 90s, it seemed silly. A hundred megabyte hard drive in the 90s was like $1,000, right? The fact that you had the foresight to start realizing that this is going to come 
to maturity at some point in time. And that you two are the intentionality of collecting as much of the data, even though it was expensive or storing the data, that really has positioned you to today to give you a distinct advantage over so many others that are Johnny come lately that are trying to get into this now. They don't have the data. They may have the technology, but they don't have the data. That's exactly the point. That's the main differentiator, right? You can call it foresight. Some people will call it stubbornness, whatever it is, but, <laughs> but here we are. We have decades of data, not just loan data, but the causal data and why things happen and which directions they went. And that is what is needed to build this. First of all, you can't go back in time and, and pull data out of the air from the past. So you got to start collecting data going forward. And unfortunately, most of the systems, most of the LOS systems out there today aren't designed to collect this kind of data. They, they can barely manage the loan as it is. I, I think every major LOS system, you can't have two people on the same loan at the same time. They're so antiquated in their technology. Antiquated relative to where we're at today with the fast emergence of AI. Yeah, just I think just when it comes to any kind of data management system, loan systems, is, it's, it boggles the mind. You can't do basic things in them, whereas any other system you would work on, it's why not? Why can't two people be in the same record? Could you imagine if you can't access your emails from two different devices at the same time? I know. We're way past that in so many other areas, but not sure. in mortgage lending. That's a great point that you're bringing yeah. out there. When you're talking about systems that can track causal data when they can barely track current data properly. These systems need complete massive rewrite, number one, that would take years. And then second, then the data collection process has to start. And then the training has to start. So how many years is it going to take for them to catch up? Yeah, makes sense. It's going to take a long time for them yeah. based on the right. how you approach it. Just another example to put it in perspective. What, a year or two years ago when the new MISMO standard came out, for Fannie and Freddie for the new 1003. Being data-driven, we completed the conversion ahead of schedule and our test cases passed the first time with Fannie and Freddie. And Fannie and Freddie couldn't believe it. They're like, how did you do this? Because every single one of our partners from the biggest names out there, they've done 10, 20 test cases and they can't pass. And I think at the end of the day, everyone was behind and we were weeks ahead of schedule. That's the fundamental difference. That's the technology stack difference. So what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is because you had the causality data along with just the data that you were able to do that. Is that correct? Is that yes. the right way? To yes. It's the depth of the data. It's also the underlying technology structure where it makes it so flexible and easy to adapt to new changes. It's like low code. It's a very low code environment. I feel that's another rabbit hole we could go down. What I want to do when we start looking at how you're doing that, starting to get further into the computer, the software aspects of this. And what I want to do is make sure we stay on track and trying to educate our listeners and those that are wanting to learn more about what is happening with AI as it relates to mortgage. And honestly, there's no one else doing what you're doing with Angel AI and the way you're doing it. And you have such a long runway ahead. What's the right word? You are so far ahead of them in what anyone who's trying to develop this now coming to market, you're so far ahead of them that it's not even reasonable. I think another way to look at this would be to let's look at the future. Let's say a fact that we are a long way ahead of any competition, but what does that mean? How does that translate to consumers and to mortgage industry professionals? The translation is our rate of investment in our AI development is growing exponentially. So 
we are coming out with new capabilities. I, as far as I'm concerned, we've mastered everything on the mortgage side. There's a few little things, few little areas to clean up. So the mortgage operation has become completely automated. I equate it to like the way Elon Musk describes his gigapress. You press a button and a truck comes out. Uh, it's the It just stamps out trucks. So the same thing is Angel AI is a gigapress, so it stamps out mortgages. Where do we go from here? And how do we maintain that edge, that advantage? And that comes down to saying, okay, take this technology, because it's a low-code environment, because it's built on training, train it for people to use at large, not just the mortgage industry. Train it for your podcast services. Train it for the corner bakery, the corner barber, whatever. Like everyone who's dealing with customers, everyone who has any kind of customer relationship, right? Because the core of a mortgage company, the core of, of anything that's mortgage or real estate is customer relationship. And guess what? That's the core of any business. Okay. I think it's very central, very heavy on the mortgage real estate industry because it's so relationship driven because it's an intangible product. We really have to be very good at it. And that's why we call it empathetic technology. Right? And to put well, that in perspective. Yeah. I really want to get into empathetic technology that because you've used that word when we've been together and I'm writing a note on it so we can get back to that right now. Cause I really want to dive into what you mean by it. I love the word empathy something that I struggled with for a long time, having empathy in certain situations and to hear about technology being empathetic. How can that be? It's very binary. It's either on or off. Now we get in a quantum. That's not the case. Yeah. Good news is you don't need quantum technology to be empathetic. And the bad news is as an engineer, I'm terribly non-empathetic. <laughs> I, I tend to be more binary. Yeah, exactly right. That, that's, that, that would be anticipated based on the personality type. Yeah. yeah, very good. But that also means, and, and here's the funny thing about empathetic technology, is that computers are better at understanding how you're feeling than a human being because a computer has no emotions. So it just follows an algorithm and it comes to a conclusion. Whereas another human being assessing you, his own personal emotions interfere with his assessment. Interesting. So, yeah. So empathetic technology is nothing new. It's not something that we created. It's been around a long time. It's been an area of research for years. The simplest example of an empathetic technology, something that anyone can relate to, is a thermostat in the room that is adjusting based on how people in the room are feeling. Because if everyone in the room is wearing sweaters and the cameras detect that people are wearing sweaters and shivering, okay, that's empathy, right? They're like, okay, I know how you, I know you're feeling cold, so I'm going to turn the temperature down. Or turn okay. the temperature up, but turn the temperature yeah. up. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very yeah. good. That's so, good. Enough. Yeah. So that's how empathetic technology works. It it looks for cues, it looks for patterns, both whether in voice or if it's video, at, at, at your facial expressions and and choice of words you're using as you're communicating to determine how your what your state of mind is, what your emotional state of mind is, and and then respond accordingly to that. And if and for the loan officers and realtors that are listening to this. That's something you do every day when you're in front of a customer and you do it intuitively. You don't even think about it. It's just happening. Okay. And a very good salesperson is continuously doing this and is very good at it. Yeah. I think I'll argue that the most successful loan officer is the one that's the most empathetic, able to read the situation and exactly. respond appropriately and accordingly. Exactly. Exactly. The most successful salespeople put their own emotions aside, put their own feelings about the transaction aside and completely immerse and bind to their customer. 
now I get it. A computer can do that because they don't have their own emotional overlays to use some mortgage language there. They don't have their own filters or their own reactions based on emotional responses, good or bad, that they had in a similar situation or something that seems similar. Yep, exactly. There's a good reason why in this industry, there's this sort of separation of church and state, why the loan officer is separated from the underwriting process. Because of the empathy that's involved, it's very easy to get pulled into the consumer's personal situation and want to be pulled into wanting to help that consumer without and then losing the rationality of the ability to repay. So that's why, because human beings are, are not able to separate, their empathy can very quickly become sympathy. And that happens a lot with loan originators. And then you lose perspective and you could end up approving a loan that you shouldn't and then leading to getting a consumer in a bad spot. All right, so right. That's why you have underwriters who shouldn't be empathetic and they need to be robotic, like just making decisions on the data and then salespeople who need to be empathetic. That's why you got this great divide. And that's also the reason in this business and underwriters and loan officers are often butting head because they're two very different personalities and, and they have to be in order for the sanctity of the system. Fascinating. Yeah. And that's been an age old battle forever. Nasser is trying to convince the underwriters of this cause that they're taking on and why emotionally someone should do that. And we don't want to discourage that, but at the same time, there's this checks and balances in our system. So we're making yes. loans that are saleable in the markets and not repurchable. One of the things that is impressive about your technology, you've got it down to the point where this is jumping ahead quite a bit, but you have it to the point where if Angel AI makes the decision, it is guaranteed to not be repurchased. There's not a flaw in there that'll make it repurchasable. Yes. Yeah, I use the word warranty. So we give a warranty that if Angel AI makes the decision, and it turns out that the decision was contrary to agency guidelines, and, and that results in a repurchase, we will repurchase that loan. And that's a pretty huge statement. So when we first rolled it out, it was clear that loan officers would never use it if they can't trust it. So we rolled out the tech with the warranty saying, whatever decision it makes, whatever conclusions it comes to, even if it's wrong, I will stand behind it and I'll scratch and dent the loan if I have to. So you can use the tech without fear. So that's how this started. That was years ago. And we've done tens of thousands of loans using the tech since then. And in the first first two years, I think it was, maybe first 18 months, we've had a couple of bad calls the AI made. We ended up with four, four repurchases or four scratch net loans as a result. But none since. Exactly. And that's how solid it is. If you look at that and you look at any lender out there, how many post-closing defects have you had in your current traditional process? It's going to be a lot more than four in 30,000 or something. Wow. Right? Four in 30,000 loans. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's easy for me to the, the tech because it is so gosh darn accurate. And by extending that confidence to our partners that use the tech, they can then extend that confidence to their customers and it makes them better salespeople. Right? It also allows them to be Beyond empathetic allows them to be sympathetic and while maintaining that separation of church and state, because ultimately, however sympathetic they are, they're going to put the data into Angel AI and it's going to give them an answer. We've done a lot of podcasts with different people oh, in the past. So we've built some foundational knowledge with a previous podcast that we've done of what AI really is and isn't. And in one podcast we did with four individuals, some of the top people in the industry or in the programming world software industry have said a lot of gets dumped into 
a bucket called AI, and it goes all the way from the most basic element of rules-based, almost machine learning, all the way up to when true AI, which is, I guess has been around since the 50s. I didn't realize yeah. AI had been around since the 50s. It's actually learning, and that's what true artificial intelligence, it's actually learning from the data. That's why you focused in on collecting the data. AI in and of itself had not advanced to the point, but you knew that when it did, the importance of having the data recorded or stored in such a manner that it was going to be usable at some point down the road is going to be the most important part of this. That is correct. And I think what you just said about the previous podcast guests you had, they're spot on. What they call back then was pattern recognition or pattern yes. classification. I think those words. And that was the first such algorithm came out in 1952. So that's how far back it goes. And, and it hasn't fundamentally changed much since then to now. There's been enhancements and new mathematical formulas have been created since then. But the big change since then to now has been basically computing power. Hmm. The first cruise missiles, the uh, Department of Defense when they were building the Tomahawks in the late 80s and early 90s, right? they, they were trying to train the, the camera in it to detect the difference between a truck and a car. And that, that was a big deal, or building a versus a truck versus a car, so it can not miss the target. And that was the big challenge, and they were trying to figure that out. And the conclusion was that the only way to do it is to throw lots of pictures of trucks, lots of pictures of cars, and lots of pictures of buildings, and only when it has zillions of those pictures then it has enough data to know the difference between the two. Okay, so you can't just throw it random pictures. You have to give it a stack that says, these are all cars. Here's a trillion pictures of cars. Here's a trillion pictures of trucks. And here's a trillion pictures of buildings. So that's three trillion pictures. If you just gave it three trillion pictures without classification, it, it's not going to learn anything. Could you imagine the effort it takes to go through all these pictures? And for it just really requires a human to classify it between the three buckets. Right. Now, what has happened since then is there are like predictive algorithms that will help you classify it and you just need a human to help it along. Okay. The neuro training models like self-correcting and so forth, and I don't even know all the latest buzzwords and jargon around this stuff, or my engineers can talk about those things. But the point is that the algorithms have improved so that it's more self-training, more self-correcting. And that's how something like ChatGPT that loads trillions of tokens in is able to get trained because it's self-correcting training, right? There's, you just don't have enough human beings correcting it. But self-correcting can only be accurate to a certain point. That's why it makes mistakes, okay? And in mortgages and in finance, you can't afford to make a mistake, not when I'm putting real money behind each yeah. decision it makes. So the data has been painstakingly manually curated over the years and manually aligned correctly. Again, if I was training a Tomahawk cruise missile that, yes, these are all cars and these are all trucks and these are all buildings and there's no doubt about it. A cruise missile, people's lives are at stake. You better get it right. And in, in, in a sense, so is mortgages because you have so much net worth. We're highly leveraged business. We make billions of dollars of a loan based on a, a net worth that's not a fraction of that. And so if we get it wrong and we get it wrong in a significant way, our business, our life, and the livelihood of those that work for your company are out of business. So it's so critical that we get this right. So you've already helped us understand why Angel AI has got a decided advantage. But I want to contrast this for a minute with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. DU and LP, for example, have been making decisions, but have they been storing the data? 
in the manner that you have. Is that the differentiator here? I really have never looked under the hood on Fannie and Freddie. I don't think they'll let anyone look under the hood at what they're storing. But let's just say they are storing the the decisions and how they're making the decisions. But as anyone who's ever originally alone knows that getting the DU and LP approval is only 1% of the problem. First is getting the data into DU and LP. So they don't have any information. Fannie Mae doesn't know how the data gets in there. They just get a file in their system because they're not originators. How the data gets in their file, they don't track that. And then DU and LP spits out these conditions. So DLP spits out the steps and they don't look at, it's up to the lender at that point to say that the steps are resolved and the loan is sellable. You don't send the, those steps. If the, if the DU says you need two years of W-2 or tax returns, you don't send two years W-2 or tax returns to DU. You don't send those documents to them. You as a lender, it's on your reps and warrants that, yes, you've got the two years W-2 and tax returns before you deliver that loan to Fannie to sell it. So, so that's where all the fiction is in this business. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So what you're saying is you have literally captured all those elements, data elements, beyond what was just requested, and you actually have them in the system, and your system is learning from all of those information that's being stored. Correct. So every time there's a DUNLP step, right, and what is required in every loan that has satisfied the step or in every loan that has not satisfied the step, that's all stored. And not only that, but why it satisfied it and why it did not satisfy it. So you could imagine as loan is originated in our process, our staff has been required to record all of that along with not just signing off the step. They had to do all these other things along with it. So this has been a part of our loan origination culture for years. And all that is recorded in our system. And now when you have all that kind of data recorded, then you can start training an AI to infer, here's a document, here's two years of W-2s, here's the Fannie Mae step, and will this satisfy it or not? Now you have enough data to make that inference and make a decision. All right, Pavan, so we now understand the importance of having the data, not only having the data, but how the decisions that were made based off the data that was stored. And then, and you already distinguish why an LOS doesn't have that data. They collect the data, but they weren't involved in integrally tracking all the reasons why something was approved or not approved. Now, there are different systems that do that out there, but they're all separate systems and it's not one consolidated database. So am I correct in what is making your initiative, what you're building, have built, and now really getting out to release makes it unique because of those factors. Is that correct? That's correct. It's the depth of the data and the fact that, we, that we're tracking all the causal information, all the, all the events. Yep. That all happening. the events that was a result of the data. Yep. All right, good. Now, there's also another factor you mentioned, and I want to get into computing power because we're having significant developments. You were telling me about the other day that I want to start sharing with our audience, the IBM is the chip that has been out at release that has AI embedded in it. Before we go there, maybe we should talk about what has been the development of computing power since you started this project? I give the credit to the crypto industry for this. Oh, okay. So, okay. So it's, it's like with anything, one industry that a lot of money is put into that is then used for infrastructure. Once you create new infrastructure, then the existence, the very existence of the infrastructure creates new opportunities. If you're Peter Schiff and you're like, I don't own any crypto and I'll never own a crypto, right? Or you're on the other side, like Brock Pierce or Andrew Keys, and they're all crypto. It doesn't matter 
what matters is that hundreds of billions of dollars were spent in building data centers and high speed processors. And that kind of infrastructure would not have existed if not for the crypto boom. And it's because of crypto boom, we have NVIDIA today. NVIDIA was just graphics cards. They're just making for video games. And the crypto industry figured out that you can use these graphics cards to do really fast calculations and use it for crypto mining. So now over the last decade, these massive data centers have been set up with arrays and arrays of these graphics cards doing massive amount of computations. And that's exactly what was needed for artificial intelligence. You needed this high speed, massive amounts of computation. So with the crypto industry and crypto valuations falling, and you would have thought, okay, these data centers are going to go out of business and all that money was sunk and lost. Then turns around, then you get AI coming that needs even more computing power than the crypto world did. And NVIDIA stocks are now a a trillion dollar company overnight. So infrastructure is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's exactly what happened with the internet in the 90s. There was such massive investment in bandwidth which is why we're able to do this Zoom call today. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. Uh, so when you create the infrastructure, mm-hmm. the new technologies that will come out of that infrastructure is not even fathomable at the time the infrastructure is being created. That's the state of the AI world and the chip technology world today. And why it seems suddenly that AI is, is so prevalent is, is everywhere because we have so much cheap and abundant computing power that was literally not possible if not for the amazing work that the crypto industry did. So now we're saying, what well, we want more tokens. We want faster decisions. We want more data. And you can only make these chips go so fast. We're at the theoretical limits of microprocessors. They're at one, one nanometer dies, the printing dies. They're at one nanometer, which is the size of an atom. You can't make them any smaller. So you're at the limits of that. So what do you do? But you still want to throw more data in it. You still want to go faster. And what do you do? You're stuck. And eventually comes a time where you're consuming all the power that's generated in, in the planet and you still can't keep up with the, the requirements to create an AI that is human-like. So there was a little company, I forgot the name, about two years ago that came up with this idea of creating an analog computer on a chip. They use the same technology as your SD card. Your SD card, your little tiny memory chips, they use that same technology in a different way. Interesting. And I can diagram out like how it works, but I think that's beyond the scope of this conversation. But the bottom line takeaway is the same SD card that's in your phone that stores the, the memory on your phone or in your laptop. Okay, so this company had an idea. Let's use those same chips. And we already have the ability to manufacture. You get these tiny SD cards store like terabyte of data. So we already have these very dense SD cards, massive circuits and little tiny packages. And they say, well, what if we use those same transistors, not as digital circuits, but as analog circuits? And the difference between a digital circuit and analog circuit is the speed of light. Every time a GPU makes a math calculation, it's a couple of clock cycles. And, a, and that's as fast as the clock can go, which is, I don't know, they're running three, four gigahertz these days. Whereas the speed of light is basically, you can call it instantaneous, although Although the physicists would argue with me that. <laughs> if you're using 
digital, which has some limitations, and then you go to analog that's based on light speed, it seems like it's unlimited, but it is. I understand that. But down the road, we'll realize and be able to overcome those limits as well. But still, at this point, what you're saying is this has the ability as a result of it moving at the speed of light to rapidly accelerate on a little disk, a compact little disk. On, on a silicon chip. So IBM bought this company last year and they, they bought this little company. And obviously with that, they bought the patents with it. And it made sense for them to sell to IBM because IBM has the world's greatest chip manufacturing capability. Right? They're the ones who created the one nanometer chip to begin with. So if anyone could right. take that technology and and bring it to scale and create massive, massive AI chips, it's IBM. So they bought, this company's had working chips out in the market for a while. And now IBM is, they, they, I saw a press release uh, a week or two ago, and IBM is releasing with under the IBM banner, the next generation of these chips. So very dense, very fast, very low power consuming chips. So I see in the next six months to a year, I see every phone, every PC having one of these chips in it. And so what it means is what you would normally have in a data center, and, and hundreds, what you would normally spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on arrays of GPUs in a data center, you would have on your cell phone for $5. Wow. That's what it means. And very low. So your cell phone will be doing AI calculations. In itself. In, in itself, right? Within, its, within, within itself. itself. Right. right. And you combine that with the latest Llama technology from Facebook, right? People are running the pre-trained trained Facebook Llama model on their cell phones already using standard chips. And For those that don't know what the Llama model is, could you just do uh, a little bit? Yeah, it's called large language models and there's the different standards, different approaches. ChatGPT has theirs, Google has theirs, and Facebook has theirs. And Facebook, it's interesting, Facebook completely open sourced theirs for commercial use. It was for a long time only available for educational use, research, but now they've made it completely free for commercial use as well. I think this is Facebook's way of derailing Chat GPT and and Google because what history has shown in the computer industry in the tech industry is that the product that is the most readily accessible and the lowest entry cost is the one that ends up owning the market. So when Mark Zuckerberg just made it completely open sourced and, and made it free for everyone, right? He's basically saying, I want my language model to become the standard. Is Obviously, it, he's is got, it a better one? Or are they all fairly competitive? They're all similar. And we've done a lot of testing with the Facebook model, and it's very good. At 7 billion tokens, it works as good as, almost as good as ChatGPT's 1 trillion tokens. And there's articles published out there that compare the two and say, it's good enough. And you can run this thing on your cell phone. It's open source, yeah. If it's open it's source, open, then it just... It's open source, and you can run it on your cell phone. And it's okay, why do we need ChatGPT? And so this is a real problem for the big tech companies. You know, the Google put out a paper, Google engineers, and it was an internal paper that leaked that was a warning to management saying, we have no moat. That was the headline of the paper. We have no moat. That means that AI is so easy to replicate, AI algorithms. They're so old, there's no patents on them. Mm. And they're so easy to replicate that anyone can create it. And now the computing power is so accessible. So Google is saying, hey, whatever we develop on AI and the Joe Blow in his garage can develop the same thing himself. So what's our competitive? So their engineers are worried. What's our competitive advantage? How do we stay relevant? Really interesting. And, and that's the whole crux of the problem here. The whole equation is boils down to that. How do you stay relevant? That's why there's so many AI companies keep cropping up 
that generate art and do voice simulations and they can modify your picture and make you look like you're singing and dancing or doing whatever you wanted to do. It looks like you go on the internet, another company every day is popping up, the AI did that. But then you really dig deep and look under the hood and see what are the practical applications of this technology. And they're interesting, they're fun, and they could be very useful for your art and marketing department. In fact, you're using AI to edit this podcast. Mm, and, that's right. And it's extremely useful stuff. But is it high value enough? where you would trust your bank statement onto it. There's a huge divide, right? There's an ocean of divide between generating a template for your email or slicing up a video for publishing versus right. real money at stake and trusting it that's saying, hey, this million dollar <laughs> loan, I'm going to go ahead and fund based on what this AI is telling me. That's the ocean of divide. And that's the divide that we have crossed. And that is the hard part. And that's where... So along that divide is where all of our patents and trade secrets rest and how we did that. So you need data, number one. So we have a massive advantage because we have the data and we had the foresight to develop a system that collected the data. So we have a system that naturally collects the data as it's used and we have the data. And then second is we build this bridge across this ocean. Right? This ocean is bigger than the Pacific Ocean. And, and we build this bridge all the way across it from Hong Kong to LA, okay? That says, okay, we're going to make a decision and it's so reliable that I can put real money at on the line with this decision. Interesting. And, and you can't do that with any of these other systems. You can't go to Facebook's LLM or into chat GPT and say, here's a bank statement and calculate and tell me if there are any deposits on this bank statements or even better. Tell me if there's anything on this bank statement that is contrary to FHA guidelines. It cannot do that. Because some of it is really complicated math of you got to look at the deposits and is it more than a certain percentage and, and when did it happen, all this kind of stuff. But we can but do this, that. This is what you're saying, but that is what you have done. That is what we have done, right? That's why we have crossed this ocean that is so wide. And Fast. we've been fiddling with this for years. It's not like we just crossed it yesterday. Right? We've been trying to cross it for a long time. We've been building this bridge for, for a long time. And we've been learning along the way, a little bit here, a little bit there, and it keeps adding up. And brings us to the here now. First of all, let's sum it up. You've got the data. You've been looking at how the data has been, the decisions, the causality that's come out of the decisions that have been made. You have all of that. You've been learning and learning. The system is now learning on its own all of those decisions. You've taught it how to read and bring that about. You went through the test cases when they came out with a new 1003 and you passed them the first time because of how you went about it. That's not like anyone else. You've already got so many plaques on the wall of what you've accomplished, but now you're taking this to market. You're bringing this out and making it available for others to use. You've also identified the fact that there's now chips that will work in your phone, very dense chips that require low power to the point it can literally run very complex computations, artificial intelligence computations on your phone as a result of this new chip that IBM bought and is developing. Are others developing it as well, or do they really have the corner on it? I mean, is that the place... The, the, the patents that this company has have to do with how they create these circuits on chips. Now, if someone else can figure out another way to create these same analog circuits, dense amounts of analog circuits on chips, if someone can figure out another way to do it, then yes, there would be another way. I People have been searching for this for a long time. 
it boils down, I'm going to geek out for a minute. It boils down to creating a variable resistor on a silicon die. It is a very hard thing to do. And these guys figure wow. that out. So the only other way to create a variable resistor, to create a variable resistor on a silicon die is a high-speed switching transistor, which simulates a resistor, but that takes a ton of power and it's slow. Yeah. So, and then it's slow. Or this is low power and extremely fast. It, low power and it's, it is a pure variable resistor on a chip, right? And it is, it is hardwired. That's amazing. It, 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 is, um, it is amazing. The, the idea was brilliant. It was an ingenious idea that these guys had. And the fact that they would take existing fabrication and an, ex, an existing fabrication technology and just adjust it slightly. And so that means they already had scale. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Okay, so bring us forward. You have taken to market this product. What are the reasonable expectations? A lot of people have so much invested in the mortgage industry. Now we're going really drilling into you know, what we've been talking about. It's probably interesting to almost anybody. But now we're getting into the mortgage specifics of the industry. And there's so much investment in all the LOSs, all the technology that bolt into the LOSs. And what you're really saying that is old, antiquated technology compared to right. what you've built. You have created something that moves at the speed of light and has got all the decisions that's been recorded over many years, decades into your technology. And you're now able to make accurate technology, the decisions, lending decisions based on the data that's there to the point where you'll warrant the results. And you're giving this away to any realtors or anyone that wants to just start playing with it. You're giving it away to them. That's yes. now you're not going to warrant a decision where they're not licensing and they're not using it, obviously, but you within, if someone uses this inside their business, license it, signs up with you, you'll warrant it. It's amazing. And a slight correction. We're not using IBM chip yet. So it's not speed of light. Uh, okay. we're, we're still doing it the whole way. We're still doing it the whole way with GPUs. But that's around the corner with IBM chips. And yes, the if you talk to anyone in the industry, they're using one of the other old LOSs out there. No one's ever happy with them. Everyone's complains about them, but there's never been enough of a reason to move forward. Okay, I'll just deal with it. Okay, there weren't too many options that were better options. And then second is, even if there was, is it worth the disruption? Right. Yeah. right. But now, now that there's been a generational shift, a generational redo and it's like now you'd be like okay it's costing me whatever the latest numbers are four or five thousand dollars a loan to originate yeah. a mortgage and now i can do it for next to nothing now it's a no-brainer yeah and by the way for those that are listening you say no isn't it thirteen thousand? well we're taking out half of that thirteen thousand. that's just a little less than thirteen thousand. we take out half of it, it goes to commission so that's where we're coming up with the number that we're talking about is it, it's somewhere right around six thousand dollars operationally to manufacture and that's the average there's people a lot more expensive we have some clients that are actually been potentially going about that is much lower but what you've developed is absolutely a ridiculously low cost and that is going to be those into this and start utilizing this are going to have a decided advantage of what they can do with the savings and either put it into the price because we're in such a competitive market right now so what they don't spend on technology or what they don't spend on operational if costs and they could roll that efficiency that cost savings into pricing for example giving them a decided advantage so you could literally see, start telling or seeing companies Pavant, that are using angel ai 
operating at a fraction or able to roll or operate at a fraction of the cost and therefore roll the benefits of that into their pricing and their rate sheets. Importantly, I think beyond the hard dollars that you save is you save mind share. Okay. In the sense Explain that now, yeah, by mind share, what I mean is now you can focus your energy on uh, sales and relationship building as opposed to managing operations and opposed to saying, okay, now I, I spent all this energy. I got this big new account and I got all these loans coming in, but I don't have the, I don't have the operations to support the, that volume. So now, so what most lenders do is they go grab some sales. Okay. Then they go and struggle with then getting it put together. Putting, putting it, put, getting it put together and then they go back and grab some more sales and then back and forth. And then in those, every time when they, when there's this step up in, in volume, there's a step down in service until the operations catches up. Right. And then, so they lose some of the sales that they work so hard to get in. Okay. So you take, you, you move forward by, for every 10 loans, you move forward, you move back to, so you net eight, and then you keep on going. But now imagine that if you can move forward by 10, and then move forward the next 10, you never have to move backwards at all. But every sales cycle, you just go from one sales cycle to the next and how fast you would grow. That is so, it's going to be such a decided advantage for someone that uses this technology. And so you're positioned to help so many lenders, but many are understandably locked in traditional thinking and deal with unbelief. They just can't believe that this is possible. It's correct. And I just put out a new, to help people understand, to help people see the difference. I put out a new page. It's just stillmc.com forward slash comp, C-O-M-P, right? short for comparison. And they can go in there and they can see what our stats are versus com uh, competing lenders. Uh, you know, we redacted, we, we just took data from big national lenders from their own websites and we just put it next to each other. We just took four or five of the big popular national lenders and we just compared them side by side. And we even have a little contest. If you can guess who the lenders are, you can win You can win a shopping spree. That's funny. Just have some fun. You got to have fun. You got to have fun. You got to gamify things these days to yeah. be able to, to. I totally get it. Fascinating. Fascinating. So where are we going into the industry, Pavan? Yeah, I think there's a lot of education to do in the industry. That's why I, I, I thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I get the word out. And I think it starts with the loan originators. They have to wake up that and they have to change their habits. I think this past 12, 18 months, I've been a kick in the pants and loan originators are at least now paying attention that SAMO doesn't work anymore. And anybody who's been in the industry for a while knows that if there's any real change that's going to ever happen in this industry, it starts with the loan originator. Sales drives this industry. Right. When loan originators start clamoring for change, then the industry changes. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons why the product is free and accessible to all loan originators. So they can see for themselves how useful this tool is and start demanding that their companies implement this tool. And because once you use it and once you understand it, like you can't stop. It's, it's like using Google. You can't stop using it once you start it. The LO that's listening to this saying, okay, stop licking. Just give me the link. How can I get signed up? It's easy. Just go to angelai.com. That gives you the overview and there's a button in there to say chat with Angel AI and you just start chatting with her and you, you literally, you can tell her to create an account. You don't even have to create an account. You don't have to give her any of your information to run a scenario through or ask her questions. 
She'll help you even without you having an account. Okay. And you're saying you're giving away for free. Yes, completely for free. And we have loan originators across the industry using it all the time. If I look at the daily chat logs, we get so many, like hundreds of chats a day, hundreds of requests a day from non-SunWest employees. And we see loan originators use it all the time to test their own underwriting departments. And I get, I get anecdotal stories. At, people walk up to me at conferences and stuff and says, I had this deal. My underwriter was declining it. I ran it through Angel AI. She told me how to do it. And I went back to my underwriter, showed them the Angel AI results and got my loan approved. Thank you. We're free. Yeah. Folks, free. obviously, bigger game plan here than give, creating expensive technology and giving it away. There's a bigger play here. And that'll be a fun discussion we can have at this point. But I want to make sure that our listeners are aware that this tool exists. And you have now some more information listeners on how this is developed, why you could have confidence in it, what is developing in technology, what we're going to be seeing coming out here in the next year or two, that is going to be such an accelerant to the business. And what do we love doing as originators? We love going out and talking to people and building the relationship. When we get caught up doing the structuring of the deal, working on all the aspects of it that many things where even some of you have LOAs, loan, loan origination assistants that are out there helping you. That's all well and good. All of that goes away, or you can retool those resources that you have to help you build the relationships. It's all about the relationship. We've always said this is a relationship business. What you've built, Pavan, and giving us insights, further insights into today is how effective this could be to help them with their business and get back to their core, get back to their reason for being in business. And that is help consumers get into homes. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah I want to talk about a little bit about repurposing your staff. And that's a really important point. And I just put a post out on social media about the same thing. It, it, it gives me no joy if someone gets displaced due to technology. So the way I've handled, for example, we don't have SunWest, I should say, no longer has any closers. We have no closing department because it's all automated. Okay. But we have very good closers and people who have been with the firm a long time. They're very smart, really like sincere people and know the business inside out. So what did we do? I, I repositioned them in sales and relationship building. So now formerly my closing manager, Danielle, she's now a key person in training and, and sales and communications. And she knows the business inside out. She was our closing manager. Right. And she's just a great personality, so kind and so generous all the time with customers, right? So if you think smart about situation, there are ways to really better leverage your people to get better results. If if you think short-term, yes, it, it, you will just end up laying off people and not being considerate about the talent that you have. Think a little long-term and make an investment, be prepared to make an investment. Right. Retraining is always an investment, but it's so worth it. Because if you don't make that investment retrain your best people, someone else will, and then they will run ahead of you. It's a really good point. Really good point. All right. Paban, appreciate all your time today. Really worked. Right. It's been really beneficial. Appreciate you so much as a human being, as an innovator, and in what you're doing for this industry. Paban, it's really an honor to walk with you and get to know you, man. At a, right. at a, even if there none of this existed, I just want to get to know Pavan for who Pavan is. Cheers. All right, brother. Have a great one.
Hey, listeners, this hot topic would not be possible without our sponsors. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, Total Expert, Finastra, Byte Software, Lender Homepage, Angel AI, the Mortgage Bankers Association of America, Lenders One, the Mortgage Collaborative, IE Mergent, Modex, Mobility MMI, and Knowledge Group. There's so many good sponsors here, and we're so grateful for each one of them. Be sure to check out each of those sponsors and their spots on our website, Lickin' on Lending under the sponsorship page. Thank you. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.